What's up, everybody? My name is Jordan. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Renaissance and very grateful to be with everybody here with us in the building. Shout out to everybody joining us online. Hey, uh, as you've known in this uh, last couple of weeks, I'm sure you've heard different announcements from different people about uh, their mask requirements and updates. And uh, so far, what we've decided to do at Renaissance is that we're still requiring masks and uh, monitoring everything uh, week by week, the case numbers, as some other mask restrictions go down. We're trying to see if there's any spikes or anything like that. And we are going to revisit everything in April. And there's a potential at the end of April that we would move towards mask friendly instead of mask required. But we are not rushing towards anything. There is a version of this world where we want to make sure that we are gathering safely and people who are here are enthusiastic and happy to be here while also not putting unnecessary restrictions in place if we feel that's to be the case. So I'm talking to medical experts, epidemiologists, and all the things to figure out what is the best next step for us. But as of right now, uh, I hope those masks are comfortable for you. <laughs> when you try to sing hard and like into the mask, it's like you're sucking in air and it's not the greatest thing, the best experience, but uh, we are hopefully keeping people and keeping ourselves safe. So let me pray for us before we get into today's message. Uh, God, our Father, what an opportunity we have to come uh, and to hear your word. And Lord, I pray that this time right now would be something that is real for us and transforming power. Lord, you know exactly where everybody is. You know every single person, what their week was like, what their month was like, what is ahead for them. And Lord, I pray that this time would be something that is helpful and building up of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So I think one of the great legacies that both of my grandmothers left in my, in my family was a legacy of faith and believing in God. And it didn't happen too often, but there will be sometimes at grandma's house, for example, where before we were allowed to get into the meal of the day or before we were allowed to open gifts on Christmas, everybody had to recite a scripture. Now, my family, like I said, my grandmother left a legacy of faith, but we're not talking about biblical scholars in, in my family. Uh, we got some people who would probably pronounce Malachi as Malachi, and um, we have a lot of other people. Uh, when we were going around the room, I could just see that people were just like searching the Bible in the corner, trying to find any scripture. So there'd be one cousin who just starts to open up the Bible and starts to like struggle his way through reading the Amalekites, like you should have never chosen that scripture first and foremost. And inevitably, someone would always pick this one scripture, Jesus wept. <laughs> they did it to be a smart aleck, to just try to move to dinner or move towards gifts as quickly as possible. And if you're into trivia, Jesus wept is the shortest scripture in all of the Bible. But packed within those two words is a profound reality. Jesus wept. Jesus, the promised Messiah from all antiquity, wept. The one that prophets have discussed for generations and generations finally comes to earth. And when he comes to earth, he does not shield himself from the depth of human experience. No, he does the opposite. He engages with people and circumstances in such a way that leaves him vulnerable to feel deeply. Now, the backstory to this scripture is profound, and one of these days, I'll spend a lot more time going through it in detail. But one of Jesus' friends, Lazarus, was sick. Now, at this time in his life, Jesus had made a reputation for healing people. So Lazarus' sisters send word to Jesus and say, Lazarus, your friend is sick. Jesus does something that is 
pretty confusing to his sisters and confusing in so many different ways. He heard that Lazarus was sick, and he stayed two more days where he was. Jesus, when he gets to Lazarus finally, as he's on his way in, he finds out, rather, that Lazarus has, has died. When Jesus gets into town, Lazarus' sisters run out to meet him frantically, saying, Jesus, if you had been here, our brother, your friend, would not have died. Jesus, confident of who he was, told him, your brother will, your brother's going to rise again. Now, it's really important to note this one very key fact. Lazarus' sisters had real faith. When Jesus wept about Lazarus after he had died, he wasn't weeping because his friends had no faith. As a matter of fact, in verse 25, it says, John 11, it says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone lives and believes in me. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Here's Jesus' question. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. So do you believe? Yes. This is not a story where Jesus wept of a lack of faith. But when Jesus saw Lazarus' family crying, Scripture says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And then what follows in the next verse is that Jesus wept. What happened? Jesus was in the middle of a situation where people were grieving, and Jesus, the empathetic Savior, also wept. Now, I don't know if you ever wept before, but weeping is not some thug tears that you kind of like just try to pinch away and pinch them back. Weeping is that shoulder bop cry that you cannot... Um, weeping is undignified. Weeping is not concerned with who's around you and what people think about you. So we're told that Jesus, God who comes into the flesh, experiences emotion in such a way that he would have undignified expressions of grief and pain. Lester says this all the time, and it's a profound truth, that Jesus lived the life that you and I were meant to live. Jesus lived a perfect and a sinless life, which means that Jesus' approach to any situation is one that we can see as a model for how humans are supposed to live it. Now, one of the things we work very hard at Renaissance is to make a very clear distinction that Jesus is more than an example for us. He's not just an example, but make no mistake about it, Jesus' life is the life that you and I were meant to live. And how does Jesus respond to loss, to pain? Jesus mourns and he grieves. Now, one thing that the American church needs to recover is that God has given us emotions. We're in the second week of the Beatitudes, and uh, last week, our brother Aswan did a phenomenal job kicking us off in the series. And today, we come to one of the most paradoxical truths in all of the Bible, a truth that when you first hear it, it doesn't make any sense. It goes against everything that our culture teaches us. It goes against everything that we would like to believe about life. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who express grief and sorrow, for, those, for they will be comforted. Jesus links two words that in our life have no business being mixed together, blessing and mourning. Now, life is very hard for a lot of people, and life is hard for all of us. I was thinking about this week in conversations with friends uh, that life is just difficult. There are so many people who have moved to this city with dreams and aspirations, and while you're hoping that God gives you the dreams that you believe that you might have been created for, you're not seeing it. 
maybe you moved to New York City for theater, and you're having friends who have landed those amazing gigs, and you yourself have not gotten any of those things. And it's hard to watch other people enjoy the life that you yourself want. Other times it's relationally, where you deeply long to be in a relationship, and you, every time you hop on Instagram, there's another uh, engagement or wedding happening. And although you want to be happy for the other person, you find yourself saddened that you yourself have not experienced that. So whether you are uh, for work or relationships, and a lot of times it's not even for the people who are not in relationships, it's those who are in relationships. Like life with another person is hard. When you disappoint someone else or they truly disappoint you, and you have to navigate the vows that you made that you no longer feel like following, that's just hard. To be married and, and, and longing for children and for whatever reason, unable to have children, as you see baby dedications happening, that's just hard. To parent small kids and to truly wonder if you're doing a good job in shaping these little humans, that's hard. To parent adult kids who are starting to make decisions on their own, many of the decisions that you would wish that they had never made, and to watch them make mistakes, that's just hard. This last one, I don't even want to say it because we're in a room full of New Yorkers, but to be a Knicks fan is... <laughs> It's hard. It's been a long few decades. But God models for us in Jesus what it means to encounter the hardness of life, not in the ways that we would normally go about it. So a lot of ways that we normally go about it, and some of these are true about me, and they might be true about you, is uh, denial. Uh, we refuse to acknowledge painful aspects of our reality externally or internally. We, push, we brush things aside. We minimize, we admit it's, yeah, it's a little wrong, but in such a way that it appears less serious than it really is in our lives. Because we're unable to truly come face to face with the devastating reality of what our life has served us. We blame other people. We deny responsibility for our behavior and project it on other people. We blame ourselves and we beat ourselves up. We, instead of allowing ourselves to feel sadness, we point um, we make ourselves the culprit, and we beat ourselves up. And this is probably my personal uh, favorite. And one of the, the biggest challenges in beating yourself up is that there is no a limit on how much you can beat yourself up emotionally. Physically, there are limits to how much pain you can endure before you pass out. A couple years ago, when my oldest son was, was really young, um, I was like, man, I need to get back in the gym. I need to start working out. So I was working out with a friend of mine, a dear brother, Lawrence Aja, doing some church planting work in Jersey City. And like Lawrence had like, anybody who knows Lawrence, his handshakes, like you gotta prepare for his handshakes. You'd be like, all right. My hand was bleeding last time, but, but um, <clears throat> so Lawrence loves to work out. And um, we were going to the gym and one day he said, Jordan, we're gonna do negative squats. So I don't, I don't like regular squats. I don't know what negative squats are. He was like, we're gonna go down really slow and we're gonna come up really fast. But here's the thing, you have to breathe in on the way down and exhale on the way up. I don't know if I got nervous or whatever, but I, I flipped the order. So I was like breathing out on the way down, and I was just like holding my breath. And before I knew it, like the room started to spin around. Lawrence like took the weights and just like threw them back on the, uh, on the rack. <laughs> but physically, when your body has had too much, it taps out. Emotionally, there is no thing like that. You can beat yourself up over and over and over again. And I think at the, underneath beating yourself up, is an unwillingness to admit 
that you are not in control of your life. It's easier for us to believe that we are in control of our lives, and if we just tried a little bit harder, if we did this a little bit better, then we ourselves would be better, instead of mourning the situation that we are in. Uh, we intellectualize things. We just, um, we're angry about things. Here's a good one for Christians. We over-spiritualize stuff. My God, my God. How are you? Blessed and highly favored. No, you're not. You're not either one of those things. <laughs> we throw a little scripture on it, and we baptize our immaturity in scriptures. We just want to feel better so quickly that we over-spiritualize it. And, and another big one for a lot of people in this room, and I don't want to minimize this one, man, we just distract ourselves. Now, I'm a big fan of a good Netflix binge. If you have some recommendations, let me know in the hallway on the outside when we get out of here. But many of us distract ourselves with uh, nonstop television. We drown ourselves in alcohol. We stay so busy because we are terrified to feel. We are terrified to actually truly encounter the hardness of, of life in the way that God has called us to do it. So it's a, it's a really countercultural way that Jesus is preaching here. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And in so many different ways, I was thinking about it this week. Even the way our city planners have designed New York City, there are no cemeteries, new cemeteries that are being built anywhere near that you would see. We're the first, we're the first like, generation in which we are so shielded from mortality, the most natural thing about our lives. Last time I checked, the mortality rate was hovering somewhere around 100%. And we're shielded from it. We're shielded from it because we'd rather not even face the reality that is the end of all of our lives. But we're really bad at, um, uh, we're bad at mourning for a number of reasons. And there's a really unusual thing about Christ's statement because everything in our world opposes this principle. Now, another thing that I think makes it really difficult for us to really mourn is that I don't know that we feel permission, I don't know that you feel permission to mourn your losses. Now, I'm going to talk to my men for a second. Uh, we're only allowed, men, we're only allowed to feel two emotions, happy or mad. Everything else, that's soft. I need you to man up. Bro, come on, are you crying? Man up, man. Come on, what are you doing? Are you sad about that? Come on, man. Our, we've raised our children. We were ra I was raised, not, not directly from direct messages from my parents, but in this culture that I grew up in, it was a man-up culture. You were not allowed to feel sad. You were not allowed to feel betrayed. You weren't allowed to feel anything other than happy or mad. And right now, those are the only two emotions that we have access to. So we put everything in one of those two categories. One of the things I think Jesus wants to recover in our lives is to be able to experience the depth of human emotions. Why do we have sweat glands? Doctors in the room? So we can sweat. Why do you have tear ducts? So you can cry. God gave, them, God gave us tear ducts to, to, to cry. And they're probably one of the most underused things in our lives. I went like decades without crying. I stuffed everything down as far as I could in my life because I was terrified uh, to feel any real uh, emotions, particularly sadness in our life. So number one, particularly for men, I think we've been raised in a way, and we need to, we need to come to an awareness that we have been raised in a culture that is anti what Jesus wants for us. Our culture says you should never feel anything other than happy or mad, and Jesus would have many things to say against that. That is one of the most unhealthy things that we can uh, do in the way we process life. 
And for others of us who may not be trapped by that, um, I don't think that we give ourselves permission to mourn the losses that we have because even positive things in our life can have losses. So my wife and I used to live on 121st Street and we would be all up and down uh, 8th Avenue. And when we moved, we got a better apartment. And when we moved, um, I was like, man, like all of the people I knew on this one block, I don't see them anymore. And that was just a loss. And we would do very well to know that you don't have to have a catastrophic loss in order to mourn. Many of you know my wife and I story. Uh, We're both widowed. I lost my late wife to cancer. When my late wife died to cancer, everybody gave me permission to mourn. And it was almost weird that people would talk to me and they would say, they would tell me about their life and they're like, well, it's not not as bad as your situation, so let me not complain. And it's almost like if if you were to break your pinky and go to the hospital and see someone with a broken leg, you say, you know what? I'm just going to leave because it's not as bad as their leg, so I'm just going to shake out. And that's what so many of us do. We don't feel the permission to mourn because we don't feel like our losses are big enough. But in every blessing even that God gives us in this world, oftentimes there are losses. During the pandemic, early on, and I don't mean to minimize this at all, I would talk to somebody and my house was a zoo. It was chaos in the crib. I longed for just a moment of quiet and peace. And I was talking to someone and they were like, man, pastor, I'm struggling. I said, what's up? They're like, man, I, I go whole days and not hear one human voice. And I was like, really? <laughs> the whole day. Nobody says anything to you. You just sit there on the couch by yourself. Let me pray for you. Uh, <laughs> and I'm daydreaming like, man, what I wouldn't give for a day when nobody was bothering me. And in all of the blessings that I have, I love my family, I love my wife, I love my kids, but in the blessing, with those blessings, is a loss of autonomy. When you're married, you can't just do whatever you want to do. If you do that, you are headed on a speeding train towards a very dysfunctional relationship. If you have kids, that is just a huge loss of freedom. Here's how people without kids leave the house. You open the door and you step out. In my house, it is a 20-minute process. You just, I'm, I'm, it's, like a, it's like running a football play in my house. It takes 20 minutes. At the end of it, somebody's bleeding. I'm like, how are you bleeding? <laughs> I'm bleeding. I'm like, what is going on? How did this happen? Uh, where are your socks? Why? You never find the socks. Um, and it's like very frustrating to just leave the house. And a lot of times when I see parents in the hallway, seriously, they're just like so beat down from the commute and dealing with like nonstop arguing and bickering, and they get here and they throw the kids at the Renaissance Kids Volunteers, and they run down the hallway and slide into their seats here at Renaissance. In the good things that God gives us, whether it's in jobs and all these things, there are, there are losses, there's a loss of autonomy that we also enjoy, and we would, be, we would do very well to encounter the real hardness of our life, not by minimizing and saying, well, who am I to complain? God gave me two healthy children. Yes, I love that, thank God for them. Who am I to complain? God gave me a job as a pastor. Who am I to uh, um, mourn the, the difficulties and, the, and the, the challenges it is to, to pastor a church? Man, our church is doing so good. Like, how dare I, I, I mourn that? Listen, in even the good things that God has given us, we should do well to pay attention to the things that are losses in those things. So Jesus promises us that we are blessed if we mourn. Jesus promises you that you are blessed if you mourn. 
So how are we blessed? I can think of three ways. Number one, when we come to the end of ourselves, we will find and rediscover Jesus. When you come to the end of yourself, when we stop minimizing, when we stop blaming ourselves or blaming other people, when we just come to the end of ourselves, we find and we rediscover Jesus. Uh, one of my favorite authors and mentor to me is a man named um, Pete Scazzaro. He talks about this journey towards emotional maturity. And here's what he says. He says, you cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It's impossible for you. You cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Now, as we think about what it means to grow in our faith, in America, you know what we love? We love a good book. We love a good podcast. We love a good teaching. We love a good Bible study. We love all of these things. All of these things are good and they are helpful. Please make no mistake about that. But there is an aspect of your life that God wants to deepen your relationship with him, not just through what you have read, but also through your experiences. Here's the thing. Your faith is not meant to be just intellectual. It's meant to be experienced with the entirety of your person. What is the greatest command? To love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. That's not just remembering a bunch of scriptures. You can't remember, you can't love God with all of your heart until you've given him access to all of your heart. So Psalm 61 and 2 says it like this. I call to you from the ends of the earth when my heart is without strength. Lead me to a rock that is high above me. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in your own life, but oftentimes we don't pray to be led to the rock until we have come to the end of ourselves. It's interesting how many people have come to faith, not in spite of their troubles, but because of their troubles. In Judges 6, Scripture talks about how the people of Israel had done what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And now they find themselves asking for the Lord to intervene in their life. And in Judges 1 through 5, you see what had happened in their lives was in their times of ease and comfort, they started to drift, which is true about all of us. Uh, we believe that when we're, um, when we're not needy and things are, are good in our life, um, a lot of times we just we drift. We don't really pay attention to so many different things like in the way that we, we need to. Now, if Israel had been asking for help in their time of rest, they might not have found themselves in that position. I think it's a very true thing to notice that in all of our lives, there is a, a sharpening. There is a neediness that comes into our life that makes us see Jesus in ways that we would have never seen him before when everything was good. Peter Kreft says it like this, every suffering can be blessed because it hollows out a place in us for God and his comfort, which is true infinite joy. Now, one thing I also want to be, be very clear about is that a lot of times people have experienced real traumatic things. And a lot of times when we talk about sadness and loss and grieving, the thing that you are grieving is like the trauma or the, the abuse of, by someone else. And here's what I know to be true. One of the things that is so profound about the, the crucifixion account is that if you were to read it, and historically you see it from this perspective, that Jesus himself was lynched by, an, by a corrupt, illegal process. Jesus himself was abused by corrupt politicians. God the Father knows what it's like to have a murdered son. So if your life is marked by real trauma, by abuse by other people, Jesus of Nazareth also knows what that feels like. I might not know what that feels like, but Jesus does. And in all of our encountering the hardness of life, 
We are blessed when we come to the end of ourselves because we can find and rediscover the real Jesus in so many different ways. Uh, number two, so number one, we are blessed when we come to the end of ourselves because we find and we rediscover Jesus. Number two, God matures us in our mourning. God matures us in our mourning. In his commentary on Matthew's gospel, uh, an author by the name of William Barclay talks about this Arab proverb that says, all sunshine makes a desert. That if you have nothing but sunshine, the end result will be not something beautiful, but it will be a desert where nothing can live. A life of unmixed happiness, is what he says, would be unbearable and withering to the soul. My wife and I just got back from Guatemala a couple weeks ago. And uh, man, Guatemala is just a beautiful, beautiful country. And I'm just like always so stunned at how lush these countries are. Like leaves on the trees are like bigger than my body. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful country. And another thing you see that happens in Guatemala is that it like rains every single day. The beauty is not in spite of the rain, but because of the rain. I think the same thing is true for you in your spiritual life. That there is a raining, there are downpours, torrential downpours that God uses to grow us. Don't take my word for it. Listen to what Paul says in Scripture in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, here's what Paul says is happening. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. Here's what he says is happening. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, incomparable eternal weight of glory. So Paul says, so we do not focus on what is seen, the present difficulties of your life, but what is, un what is unseen. For what is seen in your life, the relational discomfort, the things that are, uh, the losses that are experiencing, you're experiencing in your life. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen, how God is growing us, how God is making us more like Jesus, that is eternal. So number one, we are blessed in our mourning because when we come to the end of ourselves, we find and we rediscover Jesus in real ways. Number two, we are blessed because God matures us in our mourning. And number three, um, God builds empathy. We are blessed because God builds empathy in our life. Now, this is something that's so fascinating. Even as I was thinking about what it means to be mature, I was like, God, I actually don't want that. <laughs> like, if there's like, if you gave me different paths and say, Jordan, you could stay at a seven with no difficulty, I'm like, seven is not that bad. It's not failing. I don't want to be at a nine. I don't, definitely don't want to be at a 10, whatever that means. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but those people who would be giants in the faith, there are periods in their life of constant breaking. A.W. Tozer said, I don't know that God can actually use a man or a woman unless he has first allowed them to be broken. And one of the ways that God uses us is by building empathy in our lives. Now, in 2 Corinthians 1, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction. Here's what he says, how God does this. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So Paul says this, these amazing truths. He says that in your affliction, that God is allowing you to be used to comfort other people in any kind of affliction. Essentially what, what Paul is saying 
is that we are blessed because we become tools that are usable in the master's hands. One of the things I've noticed so much about people in life and dealing with people who are going through hard times is that like, people just want like, a really quick thing to say to someone and make them feel better. I get the chance to talk to a lot of people who are uh, widowers, men who have lost their wives. And a lot of times, like, I, I always get calls and emails from pastors and friends who say, oh, my friend just lost his wife to cancer. What should I say? I'm like, I don't know. Sit there. Sit there with him. There's so much discomfort that we feel in being around someone who's hurting because we don't even, we're at, like outside of our depths. We don't even know what to say or to do because we ourselves have never allowed ourselves to feel lost. If you have never allowed yourself to feel lost, you are going to be completely unusable and probably hurtful to people who are really experiencing loss. When my late wife passed away, by far, the worst things that people said to me were Christians who were shallow. The most obnoxious people, the people I would say, oh, that's, man, that's deep. That's that. That's a good word. I'm going to shake out. I'm going to leave. But you keep that truth and just please keep going that way with it. The most painful the most obnoxious things that I heard were from people who were shallow, and you can spot a shallow person a mile away. But people who allow themselves to be transformed through mourning are people that can truly offer real hope to a hurting world. And even though that might not be the ministry that you want, that is a ministry that God is calling for all people to enlist in. So we are blessed in our mourning because when we come to the end of ourselves, we find and we rediscover Jesus. We are blessed because God matures us in our mourning, and we are blessed because God builds empathy with us. So how do you mourn? How do you do what Jesus is uh, calling us to do in the scripture, and how do you abide and actually receive what he wants us to, to get? The first and most important thing is we have to pay attention to our losses. You have to pay attention to your losses. Now, we'll have the notes in the, in the sermon app on our, um, on our app tomorrow. But one of the things that I've talked about at Renaissance a number of times now, and whenever I tell people like, oh, yes, you memorize the scripture, people are like, oh, I memorize the scripture. I put it on my refrigerator. I put it on my bathroom mirror. Um, and a lot of people will follow the advice that I give. This is one piece of advice that very few people have followed. You need to do something called emptying the emotional jug. You ask yourself four questions. What am I mad about? What am I sad about? What am I anxious about? And you end it with, what am I glad about? What am I mad about? What am I sad about? What am I anxious about? And what am I glad about? Now, when you do something like this, most of the, the feedback I've heard from people and the fear that I've heard from people is, Jordan, I hear what you're saying, but I'm afraid that if I spend time and actually start to write out all the things that I'm afraid of, the things that I'm scared of, the things I'm sad about, I'm just going to get buried in the abyss of emotion and I'll never be able to come out of it. But here's the thing. The opposite is true, that once you name these things, they lose the debilitating power they have over you. So here's what I do. I set a timer for 15 minutes, and for 15 minutes, Pastor Jordan is not allowed in the room. Faithful Jordan is not allowed in the room. This is Jordan who is naming and paying attention to his losses. So when I get to what I'm afraid of, when I get to what I'm sad about, I'm just listing these things out. And I'm not saying, but this, or you know, this is difficult, but this. No, I'm just naming these things. And this is an incredibly liberating experience, and I hope that you would do it this week. Set aside 30 minutes to really uh, spend some time, and after the 15 minutes, you can bring faithful person back in the room. You can uh, welcome, give yourself a hug and a high five. Um, but this is an incredibly powerful practice. We will never be able to mourn what we don't know. How would you mourn something you don't even, you're not even aware of? 
So we have to pay attention to our losses. What are the things in your life, particularly that are giving you sadness and, um, uh, and anxiety and causing you anxiety? Now, in this pandemic, we've lost a lot of things. These do not have to be major things. Some of these things that we've lost are just our connections. Your best friend moved to Austin. That's a loss. Uh, your job is, um, you're an extrovert and your job is fully remote. That's a loss. You're an introvert and your job is making you come back in. That's a loss. Um, our body's functions. As you get older and you start to notice that your body doesn't function the way that you once did, and you're pulling muscles that you didn't even know you had. You're like, I didn't even know my back had that many muscles. Uh, that's a loss. Control, the control we thought we had. That's a loss. Um, so, I hope that you do that. If you consider me your pastor, seriously, if you come to Renaissance and you love to just, you know, post stuff on Instagram about how great the community is, fantastic. If you consider me your pastor, I want you to follow this. I want you to do this this week. I want you to pay attention to your losses. Set that timer. What am I mad about? What am I sad about? What am I anxious about? And then end it with what am I glad about? And allow the Lord to meet you in that space. Uh, number two is to wait in the confusing in-between. Now, the confusing in-between resists all earthly categories and quick solutions. Here's one of the things I've learned over life. God is not in a rush. God is not in a rush. This means revisiting our sources of grief until we progress through them. This is not a one-and-done approach. So don't come to me next Sunday and be like, Pastor Yojay, I tried it. It didn't work. But rather, to commit to wait in the confusing in-between, to allow God over time to meet us, to mature us, to grow us through the process of mourning that might take a week, a month, a year, 10 years, and to continue to bring them to God and to watch what God is doing in you through that. So number one, to pay attention to your losses. Number two, wait in the confusing in-between. Number three, we have to believe that nothing that is going on in our lives is meaningless. It's doing something, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4. We have to let the old birth the new. Now, the central message of Jesus in the Bible is that suffering and death bring resurrection and transformation. In John 12, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. In committing ourselves to grieving, we must trust that God is doing something in and through us through the process. Uh, one of my favorite scriptures comes at the end of Genesis where a man named Joseph had suffered really decades of tragedy and struggle and wrongful accusations. And what Joseph says at the end of all of these things is what men meant for evil, God meant for good. That God is doing something in all of our grieving and to let the old birth the new. So one of my favorite pastors, Pastor Crawford Loret, says this. He says, after you have grieved your losses, make preparations to greet your future. After you have grieved your losses, make preparations to greet your future. God has something for you on the other side of your mourning. Don't walk around it. Don't try to sprint through it, but to trust that Jesus, our good shepherd, will lead us through it. So what I want to do right now is I want us to close in about 60 seconds of silence, and I want you to, maybe something you've never done before, I want you to think about your losses right now. And I want you to invite Jesus into your losses, into the messiness of your life. One of the things that we talk about sometimes around Christmas time is the messiness of Jesus' arrival in the manger. 
And if Jesus can be born into the mess of a manger, then he can come into the mess of your life. So right now I want us to spend 60 seconds thinking about our losses, the things that are giving us or should or could give us sadness and or anxiety. At the end of the 60 seconds, I'm going to pray us out. Father, I pray for everybody experiencing unmet expectations. I pray for everyone who is in the wilderness of confusion, not knowing where to turn. I pray for people who are experiencing pain in their bodies or that their bodies are failing them in so many different ways. I pray for the parents, Lord, who are mourning the relationship with their children that they don't have. I pray for the kids mourning the relationship that they don't have with their parents. I pray for the lost friends, the lost dreams. I pray for those who are struggling to wait in the confusing in-between because they are just so confused, wondering if they're doing a good job. I pray for the people who don't know what the next step is and are racking their brains trying to figure out a solution. May we wait in that confusing in between. I pray for people with real fears about their future, fears to be known, fears for people to know the real you because you're afraid of them rejecting you. Father, I pray for the fears of us in this room who feel that you have rejected us. May we learn to turn to you, our, our suffering savior, who is well acquainted with grief and with pain. Lord, may all the losses that have been named, may all the tears that have been cried and will be cried, may we know that you hold them in your hand. You are safe with those. We can trust you. You are doing something in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.